You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We are um, in the middle of a sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we're walking through the book of Romans. And today we will continue in chapter 8, which is really the, sort of the crescendo or, or the, the climax of uh, the book of Romans, at least in my mind. Um, but in chapter 6, we saw a really important shift where we looked at um, essentially the first six chapters telling us what God had accomplished for us in the gospel to really what is it that God is going to accomplish in us. Like, so what is it that's going to change in the people who follow Jesus according to this great good news that has been given to us or revealed to us in Christ Jesus? And so, um, forgive me if this is redundant, but Romans 8, especially 31 through 39, um, can only really make sense for us in light of those first eight chapters. And so um, chapters one through three, I'm just going to give you one sentence. There's none righteous. There's none righteous. All are unrighteous, whether they are law keepers or law breakers. Um, Romans chapters three through five, righteousness is provided for us in Jesus. So that means that the endeavor to follow Jesus um, is actually something that's been given to us as a gift, that ultimately there's nothing that we can do to earn or receive God's love, but that Jesus did that for us. Chapters um, six, really through halfway through seven, by virtue of this marvelous grace, we've died to sin and to the law, meaning that we have been changed into a new creation, that the gift is not something that is inactive or passive in us, but it's actually something that changes us, that it's something that, that removes something and gives us something else. So the law and sin are passed away and we're under grace. We're under the spirit. And then in the latter half of Romans chapter seven, we see that Paul, um, an apostle who's writing this letter, who's, who, who's indwelt by the spirit, a very obviously a Christian, um, a follower of Jesus talks about his personal battle with sin. And he says, look, these things that I don't want to do, I do those things. And these things that I don't want to do, I do. Or however that works out, you know, it gets kind of kind of weird. Um, but how can we know that we are secure in Him? Essentially, is what He's asking Himself. And then in Romans eight, verse one, all of that tension is released, right? So we have this sort of great, sweeping, uh, beautiful telling of the gospel, and. Paul comes to the end and says, look, I still deal with sin. I still deal with the flesh. I'm still at war with the body. I'm still, I still feel hopeless at times. But in Romans 8, verse 1, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are heirs with Christ of the inheritance uh, that is due to him. And Romans chapter 8 goes on to tell us that we will be glorified with him, that uh, suffering is nothing in comparison to the future glory that we obtain in Jesus, that all things work together for our good. Why? Because we can know that he is going to glorify those who call upon his name, like that that's going to happen. And what we've seen really all throughout the Bible and even all throughout Romans is that what God decrees, meaning what God says will happen, happens, that it comes to pass. And so Paul is so confident in this that in the last verse um, that we talked about last week, he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so he uses the past tense. Now, all of us know that we're not glorified at this moment, 
right? Meaning we're not, we haven't been set free from sin. We still deal with all the problems of Romans chapter 7. We still deal with this inner turmoil where we say, look, I know I have a new identity in Jesus, but I'm not really behaving like it. My life still is filled with this anguish, this sort of stress, this distress. Wondering whether am I really a Christian? Is this really true of me if I continue to do X, Y, and Z? And Paul says, no, you've, you've been glorified. The past tense, that is going to happen. It, he's so confident in it that he declares it already to have happened. And then we arrive at the text this morning with a simple question. After all of these eight chapters, what then shall we say to these things? What should we say? What should our response be to this announcement of God's sovereignty working itself out in history for your redemption, for our redemption? Today's sermon is accordingly entitled, The Love of Christ. Our God is, is ultimately a, a giving God, and this is kind of the first point that we're going to talk about, that our, our God is a giving God. Our God gives. If God is sovereign, as Romans 8 would, would tell us, which tells us that he has ordered all things, that, that even the suffering that comes to us was brought about by him in hopes that we would actually return to him, that he's in control over all situations and that in all of those situations, those are working together for our good. If he is that sovereign, then there is nothing that has come to us that has not first passed through his hands. He's given us light. He's given us, given us life and gospel. But the finest picture, the finest example of God's generosity towards us is in the giving of his own son. And Romans 8, 32 says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so here's what I want to do just for a second. Let's take a, a trip back to the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, um, God talks to a man named Abraham. And so if you're familiar with the Bible, um, this is Abraham, you know, had many sons. It's, he's from that song. Um, <laughs> He's, he is the person, essentially, to whom God said, look, I'm going to make your people a great nation. I'm going to make your offspring a, a people for my possession. They will be my people, and I will be their God. That's Abraham. Okay, and, he, and, and Abraham's kind of confused by this because his wife is barren, and they're like 100 years old. And so he's like, I don't know how you're going to make that happen, but sure, whatever you say. And he, he faithfully follows what God has, has asked him to do, and God blesses him. God gives him a son. He gives him a son named Isaac. But in Genesis 22, he tells Isaac to offer, or he tells Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, on Mount Moriah. So here's the thing. Abraham, uh, Isaac is Abraham's firstborn son, the firstborn son of the promise of God, right? So God said, I'm going to give you a son. It's through your line that I'm going to bless the earth. You're going to have descendants that outnumber the grains of sand on the beaches, the stars in the sky. And he says, but wait, but your firstborn I'm taking. And Abraham, in obedience, took his son on a journey up this mountain to an altar that he had prepared. And he placed his beloved son, his beloved son Isaac, on this altar. He bound him with ropes, and he took a knife. 
And he rose that knife high up in the air. And just as soon as he was about to to bring that, that downward stroke, God said, stop. And he says this, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. That's in verse 12. God commanded Abraham to spare his son. And we go on to see that Isaac indeed lives a full life, that he fathers children, and that Abraham's lineage continues through Isaac. So when Paul says God did not spare his own son, what he's saying is that God is the true and the better Abraham. He's saying that Jesus is the true and the better Isaac, who was not spared in order to make payment for our debt. In fact, a thousand years later on that same mountain that is later named Calvary, our Savior, Jesus, goes to Gethsemane, and in anguish, he asks the Father to spare him, right? That's what he does. He goes to the garden. He comes before the Lord. He's, the, the Bible tells us that he's in such anguish that he's actually sweating drops of blood. I've never been that worried about anything, um, but he's sweating drops of blood, and he, and he asks the Father, Is there any other way? Could this cup pass from me? And he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And in that moment, the father says no. The father doesn't spare his son. And so the question is, is why? And Romans tells us that he gave him up for us, that God loved us to the extent that his love compelled him to sacrifice his son for his glory and for our good. And so here's the thing. You may, if you're not a believer in the room this morning, um, it's fairly commonplace, I think, among, among skeptics, doubters, maybe even uh, people who are antagonistic towards the gospel or religion. It's fairly common to accuse God of heartless stoicism or being distant, being aloof. I myself have done this. But if we go by Romans nine or Romans eight, um, it's pretty clear that most of our complaints about him really reveal a lack of understanding. That he's revealed himself finally and fully in Jesus. Here's a God who, yes, demands everything from us, but first gave everything in our stead. Here's a God who looked into the eyes of his beloved Son and said, "No, for your sake." That when Jesus, his one and only begotten son, with him from eternity past, looked at him and said, Father, is there any way? He said, no. Everything the Bible asks of us has first been done for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of Christianity. It's what distinguishes us from other religions. Not, Not saying that it makes us better, but... It does distinguish us. And so if you're a believer in the room, a a God who sacrificed his own son on our behalf will certainly not withhold that which by comparison is trivial. What I mean by that is that God has already given you Jesus. So God is not a miser. He's not stingy in blessing. He's given you his son. Freely we have received, right? Right? There's so many things that we're tempted to be discouraged about, maybe something that we don't have or feel like we lack. And yet the the Bible tells us that if, if, if we, as fathers of our little children, as humans, can give them good gifts, 
when they ask. How much more does the Father give us good gifts? This God. And so the, the question becomes, should we not be willing to give our lives, our everything, in joyful response to the gift that we've been given? It's simply impossible to be a Christian and be a Scrooge. So what I would encourage you in light of this, in light of this truth that we're being sort of <laughs> brought into, ushered into by Paul here, is to be generous. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your talents. Be generous with your possessions. Be generous with your finances. See, giving is so much more than just a check once a month. I think that's probably one, one thing that uh, a lot of people complain about with the church. Oh, the church is all about money. Right? It's just, we just do this so that hopefully you'll throw some cash in, in the, the change drawer and then we'll come back next week and try it again. No, God, God has called us to give our entire lives in response to this, this great news, this good news. Everything you've been given, you've been given by God. He has been gracious. He's been prodigiously gracious to you. And so our God is a God who gives. Well, it's really cool here in all of this, he, he, he really gets back to uh, essentially the discourse that we've been, we've been talking, which is, um, what about condemnation? What about this? My, Paul says, Romans chapter 7, it's, it, he, he accuses himself. He says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I'm helpless. I am hopeless. And so we come to the court of God. You see, um, the, the principal work of Satan in the life of the believer is not necessarily temptation. A lot of us like to picture the devil um, as this little red guy that just kind of runs around and, and says, hey, you should do this thing that's really not a good idea. And that that's, that's just kind of his, his motif. Certainly that's part of what he does, but his most effective weapon is accusation. He accuses us in order to take away our assurance, our joy, our hope in Christ. He continually reminds us of our sin. He continually tells us of our shortcomings. He charges us with high treason on a daily basis. But Paul says something really interesting in response in verse 33. He says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies so Paul says, what charges? Paul says, all of that accusing in, in chapter 7, all of that stuff that I sort of put on myself, all of those things that I see, all of those things that are shameful to me, I can't bring any charge against even myself because God is justifier. God is justifier and he's the judge. You see, God is in complete control of this whole process. As justifier, he provided his son Jesus to bring us to right standing. As judge, he looked upon us in the clothing of Jesus' justification and found us not guilty, rather worthy. This is not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did. And so if you're a believer in the room this morning, think of it this way. Can you bring a charge against Jesus? Jesus himself asked his contemporaries in John 8, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? Nobody answered. Spoiler alert. Right? Jesus couldn't be convicted. They, they tried. They tried to catch him. They did all kinds of little things. They're like, hey, let's just ask this really tricky question. Let's see if he stumbles over himself. Or 
whatever it may be, every single hoop they put in front of him, he jumped right over it. He, couldn't, he was blameless. They had to fabricate a charge. He was sinless, so charging him with sin was futile. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of breath. It's just as futile for anyone to lay a charge against you if you're in Christ. It's just as futile. See, in God's court, the court of all courts, the verdict has already been read over you, and it reads blameless. It reads not guilty. It reads justified, righteous. So if you're not a believer, the, the court of God is, is the highest court. He is the judge and the justifier. There's no higher tribunal and, and no other one whose, whose verdict is eternal. So in, in all of the things that happen in this lifetime, doesn't matter who's told you what, where, when, or why about who you are, none of those are ultimately going to stick or matter. This is why... This is why convicts, this is why prisoners, this is why murderers, this is why liars and, and, and the greedy and the guilty and the slanderous like me can come before the throne of God. No earthly court can match the conviction or the freedom found in the court of God because when God pronounces conviction, it's sure and it's certain. And when he pronounces freedom, it's sure and it's certain. God sent his son to cover all the guilt of those who would receive his gift with glad and generous hearts. He longs to pronounce you guiltless. This idea of a cold, aloof, distant, spiteful God is just not true. He longs for you and he's shown himself to you in Christ. And so the, the, the answer to this question of who can bring a charge against the elect is none. Because the person, the only person who's worthy of bringing a charge, the only person whom we've offended in that is God. And God himself has looked upon us and he's already said, it's done. It's finished. And so once we've been justified, who can condemn us? Paul's, Paul's going to ask that in the very next verse. In 34, he says this, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Jesus is the only one that can rightly condemn us, and yet Romans tells us that Jesus is simultaneously our judge and our defense attorney. Not only that, Paul goes on to say that he is our intercessor. He's our great high priest, pleading our case before God every minute. How foolish then is it for Christians to worry about the slander of man? You see, here's the thing. God's not saying that people aren't going to bring charges. And he's not saying that, that there's not going to be condemnation. But what he is saying is that none of those are going to stick. Because in the ultimate court, in the final authority, in the supreme court of all supreme courts, we've already been judged guiltless. We've already been given our justification. We've already been accredited the works of Jesus in our stead. 
stand in this confidence. God is the one who justifies. Christ is the one who died and was raised for our justification. Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of the Father, and Christ is the one who intercedes for us daily. So here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're a believer in the room or if you're not a believer in the room. If you are looking for approval, God has given it to you in Christ. We simply receive from that fountain of his mercy. He, he continues to give it to us daily. He continues, as long as you draw breath, he continues to offer you that mercy. He continues to offer you to drink from that fountain, that water um, from which you will never thirst. Ultimately, um, our God is a giving God and, and our God's court is the highest court, but our God is most defined, most clearly seen in his love for his people. And his, his love has been finally, fully, wondrously revealed in Christ Jesus. For those of us that are believers, we've been joined to this love by grace through faith, right? Like that's what the Bible tells us, that we've been joined to the love of Christ by grace through faith, that this was a gift that none of us could earn or do anything other than receive. And here we arrive at the crescendo. Paul asks this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right? So Paul is telling us, hey, have confidence. Your justification has been secured. You don't have to do anything. You can't earn God's favor, but it's been earned for you. Be confident in that. Because God loves you, he's done this. He's given this to you. And so the final question that Paul asks, if it's by God's love that we've been taken from death into life, if it's by God's love that we've been shown mercy, is there anything? Is there anything that can separate us from this love? Is there a way for me to lose this? Is it safe? Is it secure? Is this something that I can hold on to or is it something that, like all other things on this earth, is fleeting and will run away from me at, at a moment's notice? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 835 says this, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will these things separate us? That's what Paul is asking. He's asking a rhetorical question. Will these things separate us? And so here's what I want to make clear just for a moment. We've got to take a side to, to address this. It's pretty clear. It's pretty evident that the gospel is not a message simply of personal prosperity in the sense that if we follow Jesus, we'll receive comfort, acceptance, food, clothing, safety, and peace in this world. In fact, if you read this text right, it's quite to the contrary. This text actually assumes that we'll encounter all of these things. So the question is not, will we avoid these things if we follow Jesus? The question is actually, are these things powerful enough to separate us from Jesus? And Paul's going to answer that question in 37. He says, no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here's the thing. This verse that you have on your coffee cup is not about anything other than... than walking through the travails of life, the suffering of this life that we read about in, in, in Romans chapter 8, knowing that 
None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. It's not about, it's not about conquering your test or that other football team or whatever it is. It's the fact that you will conquer everything that this life can throw at you because Jesus has given you himself and he's already conquered it. He conquered Satan, sin, and death at the cross. He rose in victory over them for you. Paul's resounding answer to that question is no. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. He's going he's to expand that um, in verses 38 and 39. He says this, For I am sure, I am confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And so here's the thing, that's not an exhaustive list. So if you see something on there and you're like, well, what about this? It's an example, okay? <laughs> nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So here's the thing, if you're, if you're not a, a, a believer in the room, um, if you're honest with yourself, much of your life is striving for a security of sorts, right? I mean, if I just make this much money, then we'll be okay, we can have the things we want. We can be foods on the table, you know, cars in the garage, all those things. If I just hold on to this job, if I do a good job, that ensures that the paycheck keeps coming, it's good. If I marry this person, that means I, I'm, I'm, you know, I have value. I receive somebody's love. Like, it's all about sort of a, a putting a little hedge around us. And that's why in the moment that those things depart, you, you, your, your heart kind of jumps a little bit. You go, wait a minute, wait, no, that's, that's mine. That's supposed to stay here. This is why Jesus can confidently say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is why Jesus says, cast your burdens upon me, because what he says comes to pass. So if he says that you'll be glorified, that's going to come to pass. If he says that you'll be delivered, that's going to come to pass. In Jesus, we can face all things, knowing that his promise to love us for eternity will and is coming to pass. If you're not a believer, come to the throne of, gra of grace in confidence, knowing that in Jesus, you can approach a holy, perfect, and just God because Jesus has made you perfect, holy, and just, not by your works, but by his. And if you're a believer in the room, we may feel at times that God has departed from us, right? We've all been in that moment where we've asked ourselves, what is this? Everything is meaningless. Does any of this even matter? Is God really here? Because I don't feel it. It's in those moments that we can cling to his word rather than our feelings. Our feelings flutter and flitter and they go back and forth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of God brought light to the sky. The word of God shaped the earth. The word of God told seas where their borders were. The word of God told plants to spring up and animals to crawl about. The same word has promised us that not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. 
So here's the question. Should we not worship him? Should we not proclaim the excellencies of his mercy? Should we not tell the world of his marvelous grace? Look at what he has secured for you. The only thing that is imperishable in all creation has been added unto you, not by your works, but by the works of Jesus. And you can't be separated from it. So here's the thing. That whole adage, once saved, always saved, is true. If you're really saved. It's true. He has promised it. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And he will glorify you. It will happen. There's nothing that can stop it. Nothing can trump the word of God. There's no molecule. There's, no, there's nothing running loose out there that God's not aware about that's going to come in and steal that from you. What a treasure. What glorious good news. How silly then for us to hold on to all of the things that we like to hold on to as Christians as though they were meaningful or anything in comparison to this. And if you're new to Sojourn, this is why we're all about Jesus. It's him we've been given. It's him who secures our standing. It's his love that sustains us. It's his love that keeps us. It's because of him that we're conquerors. It's by him we've been saved. And, and, and it's because of him that we are safe from anything this world could put against us. Any charge, any condemnation, any, any, any possible barrier. We have been loved, redeemed, chosen to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be his possession, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, but for eternity. This is the God you worship. This is the God you serve, the God that loves you, the God that has cherished you in his son. Brothers and sisters, this is the, the message that we proclaim and live by. Christianity is not about following a list of, of, of steps to morality or an enhanced version of yourself. It's not your best life now. It's your best life wasn't good enough, and so Jesus gave you a new one. And so my hope and my prayer is that this message, that this good news would be on the tips of our tongues for the sake of the neighborhood of Montrose because in it, there is life and life abundant. In it, there is freedom from Satan, sin, and death. In it, there is joy and peace and hope. Let's pray.